It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Please come on by The Dispatch and check things out. Okay, so uh, today's guest is, um, I think this is a three-peat for him. He is uh, one of my oldest friends, knew him from my earliest days in Washington. He is now some fancy pants historian guy who wears belts. Um, and he's the author of several fantastic uh, history books, and he's uh, including on uh, Mayor John Lindsay and on Ellis Island. And he's got a new one, which we'll get to at some point when he finishes it. And... Um, Delighted to have him back to talk all things New York, crime, and whatnot. Uh, my friend Vin Canato, welcome back. Thanks, Jonah. Yeah, good to be here. What, what's your actual like? Like, are, what's your actual title? I always want. I always would prefer someone else tell us who they are because if I mess it up, it sounds insulting. And if I just don't say it, it's something else. And I can. I, mean, I don't mind insulting you, but no, you can. You've done that for twenty five years. So, do, doctor, you, uh, we talked about this. You call me doctor. If I come on, right? I, I shall not call you doctor. <laughs> Um, no, I, I'm an, technically I'm an associate professor. So, which means I have one more promotion left, um, from the powers that be, um, I'm an associate professor of history and, um, tenured, right? Tenured. Yes. Yeah. Thankfully. So now it's just like, uh, I was going to say live boy or dead girl, but I'm the values of higher education are changing these days. So maybe it's just the jet dead girl that'll get you in trouble. <laughs> well, we've sort of talked about this before. There is a, a misconception. People lose tenure. People get t- tenure taken away from them. I, I would say at our university, probably every year, there's at least one case that goes through. A colleague of mine was on the committee to look at these a couple of years ago, and they had two, two cases. Um, you can lose tenure. And if, if they really want you out, and if you've really done something, you know, unethical, illegal, uh, there are some cases, some ideological cases, not in our university, but that have made the, the press, uh, they, they can they can take tenure away. So it's not quite the guarantee. And then there's the other case, which is becoming more common of these poor, poor professors you know, who, who get tenure and they've got their position at a small college somewhere in the college codes bankrupt, goes under. And tenure does, tenure does not save you from that. You know, or even if the university says, listen, you know, we don't need, uh, you know, the basket weaving department anymore. It's really, you, you don't have enough students. And they decide to, you know, get to get rid of your department, even if you have tenure, that's it. So it's not like diplomatic immunity and lethal weapon two, where you can just like murder anybody and then get on to campus soil and be immune from prosecution. That's the kind of immunity I'd like. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, you know, don't, don't have that. Okay. So uh, for listeners who, or maybe new to you, um, or may not recall, 
you are uh, you got your PhD basically in urban history, right? I mean, you're a, it's one of your major subjects, and you wrote a wonderful book about the Lindsay administration. Um, and and you are from the suburbs of New York. We have to be clear about these things, but you are a ma- major student of New York City, and um, and you used to do uh, fantastic guided tours when you were a graduate student of New York City that I liked so much I took my parents on. Um, so uh, I wanted to get you on to talk about the New York City mayor's race now that it's had a little time to sort of gel into what we know and don't know. I mean, they're still counting, but that could take years. Um, what are your, like, given how, and one of the subjects we talk a zillion times about is the role of crime and politics and whatnot. Um, what is your overall takeaway about the New York mayor's race? Is the rapidly gelling conventional wisdom that this is a major signal for Democrats that woke politics doesn't really work for rank and file Democratic voters, or is there something else going on? Yeah, it's a, it's a strange, it was, it was a strange race uh, on many, many levels. And in fact, this morning, my New York Times, you know, email that I get in the morning with their top story was talking about just that and made just that point, right? That, that this shows that uh, especially my, uh, you know, minority Democrats, black, Latino, are not as liberal as white liberals, uh, and that perhaps the Democratic Party has moved a little far, too far to the left, especially on issues of of crime and public order. That's the conventional wisdom, and I have to say I'm a little skeptical. Uh, as I said, it was a strange race. The person who looks like he has won it. I, I, I don't know when you're going to air this, but we should be knowing. They're, they said they're going to tell us today who actually won after they've gone through the algorithms of the rank vote. Rank, rank oh, choice. so this was a terribly planned podcast, but that's fine. Go on. <laughs> that's all right. I, I, I did not realize that. I really thought it was going to be like another week, but okay. No, well, it might be because we, we don't know. They haven't done this before. So it wouldn't surprise me if we still have a few more weeks before we really know. Uh, but the person who looks like he has won is Eric Adams, who's an African-American. He's the Brooklyn Borough president. He was, uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember him from the 90s when he was, in, he was a New York City policeman. Uh, and he was head of a, of a group of African-American policemen who, you know, made things kind of difficult in the 90s for Giuliani and the NYPD. He was kind of a pain. Uh, I mean, I think some people would say he, he was a social justice warrior of the 1990s fighting against police brutality. Uh, but all of a sudden in this campaign, he turned himself into a, a, a reasonable law and order candidate. Someone who spoke, said that you know, things have gotten out of hand, especially in black and Latino communities. And, you know, we, we shouldn't defund the police. He gets he gets endorsed by the New York Post, all the you know, the right, which is the right of center voice of New York. And all of a sudden the Post in many different ways, uh, many different writers came out for him. Some people at the City Journal came out for him. I'm skeptical. And I've talked to some people who are skeptical as well. Um, he's a character. He's, there's, you know, he's, he's an odd fellow uh, and an odd political fellow. And I wouldn't necessarily trust this turn of his, which is really very recent. Uh, you know, he won, his, his margins of victory were in Black and Latino communities in the Bronx and Brooklyn. Uh, that's where he won and that's where his strength was. Uh, I think the police, from what I've heard, are very skeptical of him. Firemen are very skeptical of him. Uh, there's a lot of skepticism about this. Uh, there's, I think there's a desire among people on the right to want to believe it. It's one of these stories you want to believe. You want to have an African-American who says, no, we need the police. No, we need, you know, basic law and order to protect everyone. 
Uh, and, you know, there are certain white liberals who also kind of want to believe this, who want to kind of pull in from the radical left. But I, I'm, I'm skeptical. So, I mean, but it, I mean, let's parse that a little bit. You're, you're skeptical that he's actually that kind of guy, but he, he did campaign as that kind of guy, which in and of itself is a signal, right? I mean, whatever Bill Clinton actually was deep down in the bottomless abyss that was his soul, um, when he ran in 92, he understood that he had to seem like a centrist Democrat. And that alone was kind of, you could argue, progress for the Democratic Party. Although I think it's one of the things that drove the Republican Party crazy over the long term, but that's a different story. Um, the fact that Adams saw this path and pursued it, even if he did so cynically, that doesn't completely undermine like the Post and the and City Drill types, does it? Uh, so, so if you look at the race in, in totality, what happened was you had so-called moderate candidates. You had two people who were supposed to be the moderate candidates. One was an African-American, a businessman. Um, Ray McGuire, I think his name, a lot of money behind him, a lot of the kind of business money was trying to push him as the moderate uh, technocrat candidate. He flamed out and didn't catch on. Andrew Yang should have been what the moderate technocratic guy. He flailed and, and couldn't find a message. So there was, you know, I hate the term lanes, right? Everyone's talking about lanes, but that moderate lane was open. And if you're a smart politician, you see that it's open. There was also no other besides McGuire. There's no African-American in the race. I mean, you could have easily seen uh, other candidates in the race who were much more left-wing African-Americans. Well, wait a second. Isn't the, the one, uh, the, was it Wiley? No, my, Wiley, yes. But wh where's Wiley's, Wiley's base of support was in kind of left-wing white communities and Park Slope. That's, that was her appeal um, in, in that sense. So I don't think that, um, yeah, I think he's a, he's a shrewd politician. He saw where it is. I, I can't predict what's going to happen. I said, I'm skeptical. We'll see what happens you know, when he becomes mayor. I, I think it's highly unlikely that, you know, that Curtis Sliwa will beat him. But, um, you know, the, pr the problem is the pressures in New York, the way New York politics are, are all to the left. You have a city council, which was always left wing, which has become even more left wing. Uh, there was a race that no one's talking about, the controller's race, where it looks like it's been won by an AOC Democrat, a guy named Brad Lander, who is unabashedly left wing. Uh, you've got a state legislature which is drifting more and more to the left. Um, everything in you know everything in, in city and state politics is pushing that way. Um, so it, it, to, to buck that trend is as a Democrat is going to be really difficult. So, so just to flesh this out, is your position that this is more like all politics is local and New York City? What happens in New York City does not necessarily have bellwether, canary in the coal mine, you know, symbolic uh, um, significance for the rest of the country or, I mean, or not. I mean, like, again, defining the moderate lane as sort of being against defund the police is not a terrible, I mean, it's crazy that defund the police has gotten the patina of seriousness to begin with, right? Because. Um, uh, I mean, I, I rant about this on here all the time because it is such an idiot, politically idiotic thing. It's almost as dumb as trying to abolish the term mother. Um, but uh, do you think that there really is, is, you know, is, is this just another part of the tale of New York City being this 
parochial metropolis and it doesn't really have significance for the larger politics of the country? Well, I mean, you know, the point of my Lindsay book was that New York politics does have residence to the, and, and it's sort of the bellwether. I think the question is going to be when Eric Adams becomes mayor of New York, you know, if he governs as he ran, then that'll be a sign. If we see a Mayor Adams who is kind of more of the same um, and, and more of what he was prior to 2021, then I don't, then I think that the, the storyline, this conventional wisdom kind of peters out. So I, I think it's just a question of, of who who shows up after inauguration as mayor, you know, which Eric Adams. Okay, so, but on the, uh, uh, I mean, I want to move on to some other stuff, but on this um, point about New York being a bellwether for the rest of the country, I mean, New York City in 1968, 72 was a very different city than it is today. And, you know, and we've talked about this before, you know, I learned from Michael Barone, he had this great point about how if you go back and you watch all those World War II movies, and you saw the platoon, and there's always one sort of wiseacre, either Italian or Irish New Yorker in the Brooklyn. group. Or, so, or Brooklyn. Yeah. You know, he was like, that was basically demographically representative because New York City comprised one-tenth of the entire nation's population and was much more socioeconomically, culturally, racially diverse. So really, you could make the case that the melting pot was representative of the entire country in ways, both culturally and demographically. Is that still the case or is that, or is, is, I don't know, is Chicago or St. Louis or, or Phoenix the more demographically representative city now? Well, New York is, is basically what about 8 million, 8 million plus people. You know, it's about the same as it was after World War II, uh, whereas the rest of the country has grown a lot more. Uh, you know, I think the, the issue is you know, who lives in New York now? Uh, and I think what you're seeing is, I hate to use another cliche, but that the idea of the center doesn't hold. You know, what saved New York in the 70s was not right-wing Republicans. It was moderate moderate to liberal Democrats who helped save New York City. It was Hugh Carey as governor. It was Dick Ravitch. It was Frank Macchiarola. It was all these kind of Democrats who came in. Uh, it was business people who, who said, you know, wait a second, we've got, <laughs> we've got interests to protect here. Uh, that that's gone. That is largely gone from New York, even the business community. There really isn't much of a, of a business community tied to New York interests. Uh, most of the business community that's in New York is much more global in its focus. Uh, they're really not interested in, in New York politics. That's why the business candidate, Ray McGuire, went nowhere. You know, that's why, what's her name? The CNBC person, Michelle Carrera, Caruso Cabrera, who's another kind of business-funded candidate, just, I mean, she, she got nothing against AOC and she came in third in the Comptroller's race. Uh, there's just not that much juice. The, the middle class communities out in the outer boroughs are, I mean, they're not gone. I mean, they're gone from white Catholics and, and Jews. They're mostly much more heavily immigrant. And it's not clear where a lot of these immigrant communities are going to pan out politically. You know, where, where do Chinese Americans go politically? Where do they stand? Uh, you would think that Chinese Americans would be more moderate. In some ways, but if you look at the elected leadership in New York, the Chinese American, they're very left wing, very very left wing. Um, you know, all these other, you know, the Guyanese community from Guyana, which is fairly big in a place like Queens, where do they stand? Orthodox Jews are, are, are a growing player in politics. They're bigger. Uh, they were behind Yang apparently in the race. You know, it's it's I think there's kind of a new political dynamic that's being formed in the city that we don't really know. 
Um, but you know, even the upper, the upper East side where Lindsay came from, he's a silk stocking district. They were liberal Republicans. Uh, there aren't any left. There aren't any left. I mean, they're a handful, but nothing, you couldn't elect a congressman. I mean, in the nineties, uh, the last one was, I think Bill Green they still had a congressman from the upper East side. Um, so I saw, I mean, I, I clearly you follow New York politics on a much more granular level than I did. So I, maybe you can give some insight into this. And if you can't, I forgive you in advance because it's understandable. I'm listening to the, the segment before me on Fox News on Sunday, at middle of the afternoon. I agreed to do this middle of the day thing because I'm Skype, whatever. And so I'm listening to the segment before me. And was Eric Sean is interviewing Curtis Sliwa, who we both remember from our youth as you know the founder of the Guardian Angels and a real New York character who's going to be the Republican nominee. And... He's doing his Curtis Lewa thing, yada, yada, yada. And, and Eric Adams doesn't really believe in the police and all that kind of, maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. That's fine. You know, I, I defer to you on this. But then Sean asks him, so it's a famously democratic city. It's a liberal city. How are you, you have to win lots of Democrats to um, become a, to, to win this thing in the general election. What, you know, what are you going to do to reach out? And more cop stuff, which I don't think is really going to do it. Um, and then he says, plus, you know, I don't just walk. I don't just talk the talk. I walk the walk. I am going to make New York City the first major no-kill animal shelter city in the country. And he goes on about this for a bit. He's clearly passionate about it. And, and then he says, I defecate you negatory. He says... I just don't, I don't just talk the talk. I walk the walk. I have 15 rescue cats in my 300 square foot apartment with my wife. <laughs> now, like, like I, like, I know he's a man of the people guy, but he's had a radio show. He's got like, he's got to have sponsorships, like used car dealerships. A, why isn't he a three, is he still in a 300 square foot apartment, which is, I mean, maybe I misheard and it's a slightly larger apartment, but it would have to be a lot larger. 600 square feet. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> you know, like I could swear that's what he said. Five, 15 rescue cats. So uh, tell me, tell our audience who may not be as invested in New York lore as we are about Curtis Sliwa. <laughs> I, you know, I think you and I, of people of certain age, have a little soft spot for Curtis. Lula, Absolutely, right? he's yeah. a you know founder of the Guardian Angels. They wore their red berets. They were a multiracial, multi-ethnic group. They weren't vigilantes, but they wore their t-shirts and they kind of just patrolled the subways and the streets. They were they were there to kind of help keep the peace. And, and you were absolutely delighted to see one if you were on a late, on yeah. a subway late at night. You were just like, "That's the car I want to be yeah. in." You know, I mean, they, they didn't go around beating people up. It was just sort of a presence that was was there. And you know, he, he's been a char- he's a character <laughs> for better and for worse. He's been on talk radio for a while. Um, so here's something. The, the last two mayoral elections, I, I, I didn't have this on top of my head. I kind of knew, but I looked it up before, but I knew it was roughly right. Uh, when de Blasio wins in 2013, the Republican, who was Joe Lotta, who was a Giuliani guy, a kind of a technocrat, he got 24% of the vote. Uh, the, in 2017, the Republican candidate was uh, this woman, the Greek woman from Staten Island, Malia, uh, I forget how, she's in Congress now. She represents Staten Island in the U.S. Congress. She got 27%. Uh, I was talking to a good friend of mine, someone I think you know your listeners would know about New York City politics. He's certain that Slee was going to break 40%. 
and he has a bet with his son. His son, who also knows a lot about New York, says no way they have a bet. I, I would be surprised if, if Sliwa gets hired in the low 30s. I mean, it's just, uh, and, and part of it is what you said there. There's no, um, you know, running as your number two position, no kill animal shelters, regardless of how you feel about this, is not really what the person who's going to govern an eight million person city needs to do. Um, and I think it's going to be a little more, he, he's a showman. Right. And I think uh, and I don't I don't get the sense that there's policy papers behind him or a staff that's, you know, thinking about how to run the city uh, and the crime stuff will only go so far. I think um, he'll probably go after. I mean, there's some some stuff about Adams. Yang went after Adams on some corruption stuff. Never. Um, then there's a the question of, of where Adams lives. Yeah, no, I, I follow that a little bit. Right? Uh, and, and Yang had the same problem because Yang doesn't really li- he live in the city. He's got an apartment, but Yang is really, he lives in New Paltz in upstate New York, which is a, a left-wing enclave up there. Um, yeah, there's a question about where Adams really lives. Um, also, Adams, un, uh, he brought out a 25-year-old son that no one had ever heard of before, uh, you know, when he showed off his Brooklyn apartment. There's, you know, I, I don't know how far Sliwa will go with all this stuff, but uh, I, I, I don't see him attracting more than 30, 35% of the vote. But I mean, did Sliwa take, I mean, like a vow of poverty, do you know of? I mean, I just, it's the, the... you know, I don't, I don't know him. I don't know that much. I, I do know he's, he's had a few marriages. Like one of the marriages was to uh, a liberal democratic politician, Melinda Katz, who was, had been the borough president of Queens. And, you know, I mean, I think when you, when you have a couple of divorces in there, that, that certainly, uh, and I think there are some kids involved. I, I don't know yeah. all the I, details. I, I just, I thought it was, I just thought it was strange because I mean, he's such a fixture. I mean, in New York, he's still kind of a, significant celebrity type and you would just think he would find ways to make a little money off of it i mean new york's expensive but 300 square feet with 15 cats and a wife for some people that's like a definition of hell um so uh there's one more thing you got to say about curse sliwa that this is a guy who and it it, i I think it was it was real um you know they tried to the mob tried to assassinate him Right. He took like five shots from Gotti took, or something. Took right? shots. Yeah. I took a bunch of shots and, and it was, was, was badly hurt. Uh, I don't think it was from Gotti himself. I think it was from one of his, he had, you know, he had made fun of this Gotti Jr. Made fun of. Um, yeah. And so he's a, he's a character. He's a part of uh, New York city in the last couple of decades. So speaking of people beloved by the mob in the old days, uh, what is your take on Rudy Giuliani and his fall from grace? Or maybe, you know, cause I mean, you're more sympathetic to the, the, Trump Republican party than I am. Maybe you don't think he's had a fall from grace. Maybe, no, it's, it's maybe you think the election was stolen. And in fact, the Italians did it by satellite. I think, I think Julian is coming out with, uh, with what's her name, Sydney Powell. They've got a press conference this afternoon <laughs> down at Joe's bar and grill. Um, no, I, I, I feel, I feel badly for Rudy. I think he's, he's definitely hurt his reputation and, and, and he had a good reputation, I think, as an, as a deeply important mayor of New York and a person in, in New York city politics. Um, you know, I've tried to think about this. I've tried to ask some people. I don't know Giuliani. I was asked um, to, to help write his memoir. Uh, this was right before 9-11, not by him, but by his editor. And I, I said yes. And then, of course, 9-11 happened. And the memoir didn't happen. Um, so, But I, I never met him personally, so I don't know him personally. Uh, but I've asked people. Someone suggested that Rudy is um, has problems when he's not in a stable relationship, mm-hmm. um, that that's often don't we an all? issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another, but one thing that I've thought about is Rudy always had mentors, like older lawyer types who kept him in line all the years, uh, as well as some people who were his peers. 
And, you know, even when he ran for mayor, you might remember in the first race in 89, you know, he, he was at a riot, basically a police riot at City Hall against Dinkins. And he was part of this and kind of stirred it up. So there was always that tendency where he had to be kind of reined in a little bit. And he had people who were able to do that. And I think since he left office, he, he hasn't had that, and especially in the last, you know, five or six years. Um, you know, it, it's sad because I still think he was a terrific mayor and, a, and an important mayor. And, um, but yeah, I, I think I, I just finished, I just reviewed a, a book about New York City history. It's a history of the last 40 years of New York. I reviewed it for the City Journal. It's, it's not a great book, but you can see in there, it's written from by a, a sort of a moderate liberal, uh, how much the Trump years have impacted the way that people like this author see the Giuliani years, right? And, and, and I think that's wrong. I mean, basically, the Giuliani years were just one big dog whistle to white supremacists, uh, as far as they're concerned. Um, and that's because of the, you know, the craziness of the last few years. Yeah, the hotbed of white supremacists in New York City. Um, although, you know, it's, that, that does raise, it's something I've just been meaning to ask you. It's a total non sequitur. There's no concrete evidence of this, I think, except for one New York Times article um, from the time. But there's that story about Trump's father attending a Klan rally, what in Queens? Yeah, um, in like 1920 something. Uh, forget. I mean, if you, if you have an opinion on the veracity of the Trump relationship to it, but I just mean to ask you, like, tell people uh, you know about the Klan in New York City because I mean there were there were some horrible lynchings um, during like the Civil War and stuff, but. What was the Klan's role? And this would be the second Klan, right? This is if it's 1920s, which is a very different Klan than the first Klan. Um, uh, was there a big presence in New York City? I'm just, you're the person to ask this question. So, so yeah, I put my professor hat on and I go and say, you know, misconceptions about the Klan, which, you know, that gets you into trouble. But yes, there are, there are three different Klans over American history. There's and the you're not complaining Klan. about people being unfair to the Klan. Let's just be no, clear let's about make that. that. Clear. <laughs> Just inaccurate. <laughs> inaccurate as to who they were, what they believed over time. And when, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so the first one was right at, you know, Nathan Bedford Forrest, right after the Civil War. It's definitely the Confederates, you know, continuing on the war and terrorizing blacks. Um, then there's a third one, which I think we're most familiar with, which is the, you know, 50s, 60s and on, Southern, anti-civil rights, anti-black, you know, pickup trucks and, and shotgun that and hoods and all that stuff. But then there's the second clan, which is a little different. And the most interesting, I think. Most interesting. Uh, and my advisor, Ken Jackson, is the guy who wrote the, the book, really the first person to say, hey, look, this is a different clan. Uh, it starts up right after... World War One, um, and it's largely a anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish organization. The anti-Black part is is there, but it's a much less. It's a one hundred percent American. Remember, we had one hundred percent Americanism during uh, during the war. It takes that on and you know, defends white Protestant America from the hordes of immigrants coming over. Uh, it's you know the the state that was the most pro-Klan, and the second Klan was Indiana. Right. They almost Indiana. bought Valparaiso Law School. Yep. They had they, they controlled governors, controlled the state legislature. Oregon also had a strong Klan presence. Uh, so there was some Klan in the North. There's a little bit in New England. Not, it wasn't real strong. But from what I could see, it seems like the Trump senior thing, it was true what happened. Uh, and it, it makes sense in the sense that here, you know, Trump, they're Protestants, right? They're, this, this would appeal to them. They would have been anti-immigrant. 
remember that that the Trumps worshipped in in Peel's church in in New York, uh, and Peel was one of the one of the people who was against John F. Kennedy in 1960, uh, a sort of anti-Catholic. He was a huge celebrity. So yeah, so it, it makes perfect sense that he would have been at a, as a young man at a Klan rally in the 1920s in Queens, complaining about immigrants or, or whatever Catholics or Jews or whatever it may be. Um, I do think, I mean, maybe you disagree, but my understanding is that the 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 connective tissue of the second clan to the first clan basically stems from the fact that it was basically a movie cult to birth of a nation. Right. This is the sort of the, the, this idea of the, that movie, which is what was about the first clan to a large extent, puts the idea of the clan in the minds of the people who become the second clan. But then the issues that they deal with have a lot to do with prohibition. They have a lot to do with immigration, as you say, and Catholicism and stuff. But that's it's like a, it's a weird reincarnation kind of thing, not a continuous line. Exactly. And it's not to go too far into it, but it appears that the second clan was also not quite a Ponzi scheme, but it was like a um, it was like the the rotary. You know, you, you were supposed to bring in members. It was a money making scheme for those who had created it. And when they were looking for imagery and you know, language for their new group, they, as you said, they tap into the the, the older clan they t- and, they, and they use that. They bring that in. Uh, and it also the other thing about the, the clan, the second clan is that it dies out pretty quickly. It doesn't survive into the 30s, really, in any meaningful way. It's it's, it's mostly in the the early to mid 1920s. I am. Um, I sometimes, somewhat trollishly, will tell people that I think one of the best depictions of the Klan, um, in cinema of the Second Klan in cinema is in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Um, because you have this, you know, this progressive sweep, sweep clean with the broom of reform guy against this old line party boss guy and back then it depended on the state and locality and all that kind of stuff but you know the the third clan types were more likely to be the good old boy but the second clan types were more likely to be the sort of progressive um reformer eugenics you know anti-immigration types um um with obvious caveats that depended on the, the place and time and all that kind of stuff all right so um Let's move on to broader situation. I can't remember the last time I had you on. Was it close enough to ask you this question that I'd asked a lot of people for a long time? And then I abandoned briefly because I lost faith in my own predictive powers. And now I'm returning to once again, because it turns out, as with most things, the, 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 the arc of my correctness uh, bends towards <laughs> justice. Um, T- towards Jonah's, yeah, towards yeah, Jonah's views. Yeah, that's right. Um, um, I'll have to work on that phrase. The um, I used to ask people like once once Biden got the nomination, what if he was elected? Will's presidency look more like first term LBJ, uh, first two years of LBJ, or last two years of LBJ? And there was a brief moment there where it looked like maybe this FDR crap was going to happen. Now I'm utterly convinced I never should have thought it for a second. Ramesh was right. And I was right that the more likely scenario is either the first two years of LBJ or the last two years of LBJ. And now it's looking more and more like the last two. But what is your assessment of that? Do we have a presidential parallel yet that, that, you know, I know it only rhymes. It doesn't repeat itself, yada, yada, yada. But like, where do you, where, how do you see things right now from a historical perspective? 
And I, I loved the, the, st- the story I loved was the historians that go to, went to the White House, in which I think I know one or two. And, and they weren't all historians. Some, there's some of them were actually good historians, but there were a few. But the part I loved was, and I can just imagine the meeting where they're all telling him, Joe, Mr. President, you can be the next FDR. And you can see Joe like getting all excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can be better than FDR. You can be better than LBJ. And, and his, just getting more and more worked up. They knew exactly the kind of thing that would get Joe Biden uh, excited and animated was being greater than these great heroes of the Democratic Party. Uh, I, you know, I never bought into the Joe Biden as moderate thing. You know, the, Joe Biden is unifier. Joe Biden is as moderate. I, I just didn't buy into it. Uh, I didn't expect it to be FDR or LBJ. I mean, you know, the other analogy is not to the first half or second half of LBJ, but to the Carter years, right? To the kind of drift. And I think this is, I think that's what we see now. We see sort of a drift. We see a policy drift. Uh, You know, they clearly want to to get as much as they can, the Democrats, with whatever narrow majorities they have. They haven't been all that successful. I, I don't think there is an analogy here. I, and I've played around with this, this idea. You know, everyone's always trying to rank presidents. And I almost think that since 2008, we've been in a different era. Like you, like you, you can't measure the th- these last three presidencies against anything that came before it. Um, it's so different. It's, we, we have so many changes in society, uh, so many changes in politics that... Uh, you know, no, the Biden administration was not going to be any of these these forerunners, not with the split that you had in Congress and not with you know, the, all of the, the momentum in the Democratic Party is, mu- is pushing left. Right. There's very little momentum pushing uh, the party to moderate. I mean, that might change. Maybe if there's more, maybe if Eric Adams turns out to be the, you know, the moderate pro-police guy that he ran as, maybe if we get more of that, maybe the party will sort of pull back. Uh, maybe the party gets clobbered in 2022 and they learn a lesson, but I don't know. I, I don't think we're going to see and, and spending money, right. Is not, yeah. LBJ spent a lot of money, but if you look at the list of programs that were created during those first few years, there's a, one of the, there's a historian who has a book on, on LBJ and he lists all of the programs in that first part. And it's, a, it's, it's an astounding list. I think conservatives would not approve of most of those. Um, that's not the same as just simply printing money and sending it out to your constituent groups. All right. So let me, let me push back on this a little bit. Okay. Um, in the spirit of rank punditry meets histor- cranky historian. So take this infrastructure brouhaha thing, right? And I, I the LA times wanted me to write about it. I, I dreaded, but I did because I got to do what I got to do. Um, cause it was kind of really hard to figure out and you've all live in kind of put in context for me um everyone filling you've all been on your bingo cards uh my uh um what i was trying to grope at and think about out of the, about this we are so used to this story for legitimate reasons i'm trying to avoid the word narrative of ambitious democratic presidents stymied by obstructionist republicans republicans like to play their role in that theater Media likes to cast them in that theater. Democrats like to cast them at theater. Every, every, everyone's incentive structure is aligned on, on that kind of kabuki. And, um, and often for totally legitimate reasons. Um, so my take on this is that we've had, since about when you're talking about, 
basically what the poly- political scientists who I know you guys despise, uh, um, party government, right? Instead of regular order in, in Congress where everything is sent up to the speaker or the leadership, you know, majority leader or, or speaker's office. And if they have the presidency in conjunction with the White House kind of thing, and there's no committee work, which is where infrastructure stuff is supposed to go and yada, yada, yada. And so party government, which is a fancy way of saying parliamentary style politics without a parliamentary system sucks. And it is explain it, it, it illuminates why so much of our politics for the last almost 20 years has been so dysfunctional um, because the system wasn't designed to work that way. So here you have this infrastructure fight. Biden is caught between a progressive base that wants $6 trillion on social services and human infrastructure or whatever. Um, as AOC put it, not only do we need roads, we need babysitters. Um, and um, which is actually as, as a pithy summation is pretty great when you think about it. And, um, and when Biden said that linkage thing, which was clearly a gaffe, he said it explicitly. He was trying to like placate Schumer and Pelosi and the progressive base. Um, it was a huge mistake. And the people he heard from weren't the ones shouting on TV, the Republicans. They were doing that for their for consumption of their audience. It was Chris Coons and Joe Manchin and, and, uh, and Warner and those kinds of the moderate Democrats. And so for me, I look at the spectacle and as I put it in my LA Times column, when we when dysfunctional politics has become the new normal, nothing looks more dysfunctional than normal politics. And what Biden is doing is actually coming to grips with the fact that he stupidly, because those stupid because those historians spun him up, he invested in an agenda that would be hard to get with 60 votes in the Senate, and he barely has 50 votes. And um and he's coming to grips with the fact that we are moving back into normal coalitional politics where the moderates in the middle have a lot more power than the bases, which is normal for American politics. So I put it to you, Vincanato, in this long windup. Nature is healing. Oh, possibly. <laughs> I mean, the infrastructure thing is, is interesting because go back to the Trump years, right? This was something that, that Trump should have done in his first year. Right. That he had talked about infrastructure. You know, he was in the real estate business. This is a bipartisan thing. Um, this is should have been a no brainer to do an infrastructure bill in its first year, get a bipartisan infrastructure bill, spend some money and, uh, and get a few things built. And that's fine. It, but they couldn't for a variety of reasons. Didn't do it. Couldn't do it. Uh, and the same thing with, with Biden. I mean, they, they had they done a one point five trillion infrastructure, like an actual infrastructure bill. Right. They could have passed it with 60 votes easily. I think that would be. But they, they didn't want to do that. And as you say, he got caught. Now, are we returning to normal politics? I, <laughs> I get you know, I'm, I'm cynical. Um, I don't I don't see this as normal politics. I, I, I just don't. Um, you know, I, there is movement, as you say, there is, there are movement between moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans to sort of do stuff, but I think they they continue to be stymied. I, I, and I don't think, I don't think you're going to strip down infra, pure infrastructure bill. I just don't think you're going to do that. Um, I, I don't know enough about the details of the bill, but, um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the story. Uh, a week, couple weeks ago, I got an email from some group that I'm on the email list for. And they are set to get like X millions of dollars from from the bill, right? That's what they've been told. And the email was, um, can, you know, tell us what should we do with this money? 
you know, <laughs> give us ideas. <laughs> and you read that and you go, oh my goodness, like, ah, that, this is, yeah. And, and we're not talking about, this was some, I don't know, some, some, I forget the, it might've been school or it might've been a, a nonprofit group. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't, I don't think normal politics is coming back to the extent that you see it. Um, and I don't know what brings normal politics back. I don't know where we get more of a center, both in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know where it goes. Well, look, I mean, I, I, in the broader sense, I, I'm, I'm still with you. I mean, I, I, I'm still cherishing my cynicism. But I see, this, I see this fight as a green shoot rather than proof of the previous, of the larger, the larger trend that dismays both of us. I see Biden getting caught in the switches by the because he actually has to deal with the Congress he has, which, you know, I would argue the Madisonian structure of our of our of our government gives power to people in the center, um, just because of the way it it's set up. And um, the problem with party government for the last fifteen years is that. They've managed because of polarization and 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 a big sword and all these kinds of things. They've managed to sort of overpower the way the system was actually designed, like sort of driving in the wrong gear kind of thing, you know. And that's not sustainable with the system that we have, which is one of the reasons why the Democrats want to get rid of the filibuster is so that we don't have the system that we have. And um, and so Joe Manchin is, you know, I, I keep calling him, you know the crown regent or, you know, you know, or Joe Manchin, you know, ruler of America, first of his name, because it's, it's the Madisonian structure of, of government that gives Joe Manchin more power than Bernie Sanders. And, um, um, and that's to the good. Right. And, uh, that doesn't mean there aren't these other larger forces that are screwing with everything that may in the end, you know, make everything terrible. I mean, I've, I've been saying for since I've known you, cheer up for the worst is yet to come. So, um, uh, but I see this as a sign of like normal politics reemerging and maybe it's just a summer squall and we'll go away and we'll go back to arguing about defunding the police and whatnot. But the failure of defund the police, like that guy, sure, you know, the, the realization by Biden and, and, and others that a lot of that pandering rhetoric in the primaries was actually terrible for Democrats. That's a sign of progress too. No. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I, I had lunch last week with a um, you know, pretty well-known conservative and another friend of mine, conservative. And the, the theme of the lunch was interesting, which is, where's the optimism? Give, give, me, give me some optimism, right? Give me the green shoots. Where, you know, we were talking about, you know, basically came around to liberals, moderate liberals saying, wait, this has gone too far, you know, ideologically. Uh, I don't know. I mean, what's the last big major piece of legislation that's passed? Um, would you say was it maybe the, the, the tax bill under Trump? Yeah, I mean, the COVID relief thing was big by any historic, like just in terms of size, right? You know, it was one point nine trillion dollars or whatever. But um, which I think has as much of a role in Biden's missteps as the historians do, because that was popular. He got it passed easily, and he said, "Oh, this is easy." And turns out he just forgot that giving people free money is popular in ways that like getting rid of oil is not, but anyway, Give, go on. giving people, yeah, giving people money is popular. Tax cuts are popular enough. It's a, and in some ways it's a form of giving people money, but the last big policy, I mean, social security reform, we never, never got that immigration reform. 
Yeah. Obamacare, I think, is basically it. Obamacare would probably be, so that's, you know, how many years ago? It's over, over 10 years ago. And even that gets through in a way, I mean, you could argue that the way that they pass Obamacare hurt any future deals, right? I mean, it was, I think, from for our, your younger listeners who might not remember 2009, what happened is, you know, they did it through reconciliation. And, and in addition to that, they did it by a very narrow uh, Senate win in Minnesota, where Norm Coleman lost. Norm Coleman would have lost to Al Franken by a couple of hundred votes in a very, you know, I, I don't want to talk about voter fraud, but it was a very you know, interesting race, let's put it that way, which was enough to give them uh, give them the vote. And then Scott Brown wins and gets Republicans back. And then they pass it through reconciliation, which I think added to, I mean, bad feelings on both sides, right? Republicans didn't trust Democrats because of the maneuver and Republican and Democrats just did, don't trust Republicans, right? They, they don't think that they want anything done. Uh, yeah. It, you could also argue, this is the standard argument that somehow this, this is working in the sense that the American people don't really know what they want. I mean, do the American people know what they want besides spending bills, but besides stimulus checks? I don't know. The immigration is the issue that I look at the most. I can't give you a consensus immigration uh, bill. I can't come up with one that would get you 60 votes in the Senate and get 55% approval you know, in the population. I don't, I don't know what that would be. I don't think it's there. I, in the time we have left, because I know you have a hard out. Um, uh, I don't think you were a post liberal Catholic integralist, um, but you, you, you socialize with some, um, and, uh, and you have, you know, you have, you have your ultramontane sympathies, <laughs> but, not, uh, not, not these days, Jonah, uh, not enough, these fair days. Enough, fair enough. Um, uh, on the right. You know, I, I, and again, I don't want to get you in trouble with people who you're friends with and all that kind of stuff. We know, we know people, we've got, we live long lives in these waters. Um, I, I think there are two things going on. I mean, there are, there are different things going on. One is I've been really shocked by the return of John Bircher level forms of paranoia and weirdness among people on the right that I didn't think would be susceptible to these things. Um, and frankly, if you believe the stuff that Trump says about the election, you are suspect in my mind and your judgment on everything else. Right. I'm, I'm not talking about how, like, because COVID, right. You know, we loosen voting rules for early voting because of COVID. But that's not what Trump is saying. I mean, Trump is like just, and his biggest, you know, American greatness types and, and the guy from OANN who's talking about how we may need to execute 10 or 20,000 people who were in on this theft of the election, the Italian theft, Rudy Giuliani, your boy, Rudy Giuliani, talking about how most ballots in America are counted overseas and the Italian satellite stuff. If you buy that stuff, I, you know, that's just, I always knew that's, we both always knew there was that kind of stuff out there on the fever swamp side that the swamps have broken their banks and moved this far into sort of mainstream conservatism is shocking. Then there's the, um, I think, the dismaying thing that the, a lane has opened up where ambitious, young, smart people in a sort of pareto kind of elite theory way think the way you take out the people ahead of you is by throwing over the conservative legal movement, classical liberalism, uh, free market stuff, and replacing it with this dirigiste nationalism, whatever you want to call it, right? 
Um, and those people may or may not be sincere, but as we both know, people in their 20s and early 30s who are really ambitious can convince themselves that they're right for career reasons, if nothing else. And then there are people who are just like, this is their last turn at the rodeo. They want to be relevant. They like being on Fox. They like getting applause at right-wing confabs. And they'll say whatever the audience wants to hear. Those are my basic three breakdowns of, of, of the crappy parts of the American right these days. Um, defend, where are the green shoots? Where are the green yeah, well, shoots, I'm asking Jonah. you, where, 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 <laughs> do, you, do you think, I mean, this na the, the nationalism stuff, right, um, writ large, and I'm not talking about Rich Lowry writing about, you know, benign nationalism. I mean, I haven't disagrees with him, but Rich is a reasonable, decent human being who doesn't like that. I'm talking about the real burn down the establishment the, the 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 old fusionism is dead it deserves to die the new conservatism is ends justify the means is there a part of that intellectual ferment that you are sympathetic to that you would like to defend um do you have a different theory about what's going on on the right uh the, than i do i mean like what is your appraisal of all this i just wanted to level set with you because we haven't talked in a while yeah about now, where i'm coming from on this. i mean you are much more in a day-to-day -day sense part of this world and discussion i'm you know i'm thirty thousand feet above this i'm out of this uh, i don't have a dog in the fight so to speak uh so We've talked a little bit about this before. You know, the, what we think of as mo the modern conservative movement is th there's a bit of ahistorical thinking on the right, whereas, you know, Rush Limbaugh used to say this. Oh, you know, the founding fathers were conservatives, you know, the conservatism through the ages. And no, they, they weren't conservative in the sense of post-1945 National Review conservatism. That's not it's not the same thing. You know, if you were talking about conservatism in the 19, late 40s, you'd probably be talking about uh, Taft, Senator Taft, which was he was a conservative, but a different kind of conservative, I think. So, you know, I see the National Review post-war fusionist conservatism as important, you know, as something that I have tremendous sympathy for, but it's also kind of a historical phenomenon, right? It, and it's one that uh, came about because of certain historical realities. Now, I know this is where the, the Straussians, the political scientists go crazy. Historicism, historicism, you know, like, well, yes, a historian and, you know, political scientists don't understand history in context. It's only about ideas. You know, this is the argument I have with political scientists. They take ideas and they pull them out of their context. So, you know, an idea is just floats out in the air as an idea. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I do think that we are in now, what I would say is a time when people are rethinking what American conservatism is. Um, if you are a limited government conservative, and I'm sort of sympathetic to it, but you have to come to grips with, we've had 40 years without really limiting government, including Republican administrations, uh, including lots of conservatives in these administrations who have not been able to limit government. Uh, you know, if you are, um, you know, where what's what's a conservative foreign policy these days? That's a that's a that's a question. I don't, you know, I think the Iraq War. I've said this before. I, I, at the beginning, I was a supporter of the Iraq War, but I, I kind of turned somewhat against it for a variety of reasons. Um, I, you know, I don't know if that is is you know conservative foreign policy is is, is making the world safe for democracy. 
<laughs> right? How, how did George Bush turn into Woodrow Wilson? I, I don't know. That's not really conservatism. And you had lots of people on the right who were kind of defending that. And uh, so, yeah, so that's going to cause a rethinking. Now, that's I'm not talking about the fever swamp, and there certainly are crazy. I, I would also say that social media, I, I'm not on social media. I look at it occasionally, but that has a, a tendency to amplify craziness. If you had if you had social media in the 80s, I think, you know, when I worked for Irving, we used to get letters on an almost daily basis. Uh, and it was, you know, accusing Irving of being with the trilateralist committee, you know, and constantly coming in. Now, you know, if, if those people had Twitter and, and, and Facebook and they could post these things, um, I think you would see more craziness. So I, I'm, I, I would say let this see where this turns out. Um, I, I'm not in favor of burning down the house. Uh, there's also the political argument. We've talked about this and the ideological argument, right? There's two different, there's what should Republicans do in terms of politically? And then there's what should conservative intellectuals do? And these are two different, but I think that's often been complete, uh, that's been conflated in the last few decades because so much of the conservative movement, right, has become Washington focused and has been tied into, you know, Washington politics, administrations, there's so much overlap that oftentimes what was the conservative movement has become what's good for the Republican Party. So yeah, I no, that's think those I are, mean, one of the constant themes of this podcast is that too many conservative intellectuals, using the term broadly, think their job, first and foremost, is to be political consultants for the GOP. And that's not healthy for either, to be brutally honest. But Yeah. No, I, and I, you know, I've seen... Seen this a little bit where, you know, conservative intellectuals go and talk to Republican policy types and, you know, that are they giving them, you know, are they giving them the advice that that they think they want to hear or are they, you know, staying true to their conservative principles and ideals? Uh, I think, you know, I, I think it would probably do concert the conservative movement good to be a little less Washington focused. I think that that's so. Yeah, and, and there's also the question. This gets to going back to the integralist argument. Uh, you know, there is a, a growing movement on the right, and this is the serious right, not the fever swamp right, uh, especially among Catholics and conservative Catholics, conservative Christians, about where where American culture is going. Right? Where is this a culture? So I'm, I'm spending my time these days writing about the 1940s and 1950s, which is the high period of American religious civic culture, where you know American political culture is imbued with religious imagery. You know, you've got Eisenhower and the, the Pledge of Your God. You've got the National Prayer Breakfast. You have all these things. We're a long way from that. We're a long way away from that. Uh, the, the two have now drifted apart. And I think a lot of, you know, religious conservatives are thinking about what it means in this kind of post-liberal culture in terms of, um, you know, respect for religious freedom. And that's that's an important issue. That's not a, an issue that I think, um, you know, that's 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 something they're grappling with. I, I, I'm not an anti <laughs> I'm not an anti-liberal integrationist. I'm not that's that is not I'm an American. Um, I'm still, a, you know, I'm still 100 percent American. <laughs> all that I, I haven't given up on America. I mean, but you hear, you know, there's there's one blogger I won't mention, you know, blogger on the right who I read a lot and I like. Um, but you know, some of his some of his ideas are are sort of that kind of idea that you know, when do we give up on America? Right? When does America become overly hostile to people of religious faith and values? And I think that's a serious, whether I agree or disagree, that's a serious argument. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I wish. I mean, this is another. It's not just social media. It's just sort of the 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 leveling and 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 nationalizing of media in general. There's something to be said that you know, a hundred years ago, seventy five years ago, you would ask, you know, is San Francisco becoming too hostile to religion? You know, which is a much healthier question to ask because then you move to someplace that isn't too hostile to your faith. But when you think that stuff that going on that's going on 3000 miles away affects your how you live your life in your local community then it's very difficult to find a safe harbor and that's that's a problem i don't know how to deal with it's it's but it's it's a real one i mean i think it's i have my criticisms of some people who traffic in this stuff but um but i mean so let me ask you this let me ask you this way as you know i'm a i'm both a I'm a sort of intellectually, I'm a frenemy of uh, Richard Hofstetter. Um, some of his writing is just fantastic and you you learn a lot, but there's a lot of very subtle bait and switch stuff and that I, I don't like. And you know his stuff far better than, than, than I do, obviously. But for listeners who don't know, Richard Hofstetter is a guy who coined paranoid style in the, uh, of, of American politics. And... There's a little sort of Frankfurt School kind of Adorno, Marcuse stuff in there. But the the way it's been used as a general rule among sort of public intellectuals and journalists ever since is that the paranoid style is basically a right-wing phenomenon and solely a right-wing phenomenon. And that's not the phrases, the phrases of American, you know, of American politics. And that said, it feels like that's a much harder, I've been making this point for 30 years about, you know, like there's a paranoid style in America because there's a paranoid style in America and it has ideo, it has ideological different manifestations on the right and the left. It feels like, you know, like you, when you say the fever swamp, how do you have an explanation? I mean, again, I don't want to get you in trouble by naming names, but there are, there are literary intellectuals um, from our universe who now believe in the full suite of the election was stolen stuff. I think they're sincere. Um, did, put this in the context for me of how am I supposed to think about my criticism of, of the, the, the paranoid style being a right wing thing when we are in, in an effulgent moment of the paranoid style. Uh, so uh, two, two things. One is, a couple of years ago, I was having lunch with a colleague uh, who I didn't know all that well. And this was in the midst of the Russiagate stuff. And this person was going full blast on every conspir- Russia conspiracy you can imagine. And it dawned on me that this, this was coming from Rachel Maddow, right? That, that she was a big fan of Rachel Maddow. This was all coming from Rachel Maddow. And, you know, when you listened, especially in Russiagate to Rush- Rachel Maddow, and then flipped over to Sean Hannity, they're two sides of the same coin. Right, there are two sides of the paranoid. Uh, now we tend to focus on the the right wing one more. The other thing I would say is I gave a talk to a bunch of retired congressmen a few years ago, and their their arguments were similar to yours when you were talking about the conservative movement, which is why do people hate us? Why are they so? Why are they attacking us? Why do they want to take our pensions away? Why are they so? Now, that's you're not talking about pensions, obviously, but you know you're talking from let's be honest, you know, sort of an establishment conservative view, and and the answer was that we've lost since, especially since the '70s, tremendous faith in institutions. Uh, this is one of the defining, I think, 
defining ideas of the last 50 years. Right? Faith in most institutions has been on a tremendous decline. I, I think most Americans wouldn't believe that if you ask Americans in the 50s, or early 60s, if they had faith in government, it's like 75% of Americans did. You know, today we're down to 10 or 20%. So if you hold any uh, position in society that is establishment, whether you're a retired congressman, whether you're, you know, a, a columnist for, you know, for a newspaper, uh, there's going to be, there's going to be attacks, right? Because there is, and not fever, there's fever swamp attacks, but there's also a general sense that the, um, you know, on the right and left, that, that we don't have, the, that, that, our institutions are not worthy of our trust. And we can debate whether that's, that's factually true, uh, whether, they, they, whether, our, our, whether we should trust our, our government or not, we can debate that. But it's true that people on the left and right do not have faith in government, do not have faith in whatever establishment, religious leaders, business, increasingly now business community as well. The military has always been up there, has, has had the strongest. Uh, and I think that's driving a lot of what's going on. And how do you gain people's trust back where they, they that's what all this disinformation, right? This misinformation, disinformation, everyone's saying, well, how can we go and, and convince people to trust our authority? And that's a central question, but you don't get people to trust authority by saying, listen to me, damn it, you know, or I'm smart and you're not, I'm a doctor and you're not. That's not the way you gain people's trusts. Uh, it has to be something deeper. And so that, what I think what I hear you're talking about what's going on in the fever swamps of the right, I think it's part of this same thing, that people are attacking all forms of authority. Uh, you know, people don't listen to religious leaders as they did in the past, decades past. They don't listen to, you know, they, they don't trust media, right? News media. We've, we've heard this for decades on the right. Uh, this, is, this is an issue. And again, I'm not saying one way or the other, but the reality is that's where many, many Americans are this day, this day and age. I mean, I see it in my students. I, I, to get my students to actually believe, you know, to read a speech from a politician and to believe that that's what the politician actually believes, they're always looking for, no, no, what is he really trying to say? No, no, no. he doesn't really mean, you know, he doesn't really, Woodrow Wilson really doesn't mean the, 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 the 14 points. He doesn't mean, mean making the world safe for democracy. There's got to be something else. Uh, that is a deep, deep kind of cynicism which goes right and left in this country. And uh, it's something we got to deal with. And if you are in the conservative movement, I think that's one of the things that, that you're looking at. You're, you're looking at this lack of faith in, in authority, in leadership, in institutions. Yeah, I'll make two points in response to that. One is, I mean, I, I think you're right about what's going on on the broader public. That's absolutely true, and particularly intensely on on, on the right. Um, but lacking trust in in institution or in leaders doesn't ne necessarily translate into believing back guano crazy stuff, right? You know, that like that, like you don't have to like have a lot of confidence in the federal government uh, to also think. You know, there should be no linkage there to also thinking that, uh, you know, North Korean operatives brought counterfeit ballots in through Maine. Um, one does not follow from the other. And um, and to the extent that the people I'm talking about who are not, you know, for for simplicity's sake, followers, you know, they're not normal Americans. They're they're leaders, they're intellectual leaders, they're political leaders and that kind of stuff. The stuff that they're trafficking in, you know, I mean, 
we're recording this on Tuesday. Last night, Tucker is talking about how uh, the NSA is targeting him specifically in his show. Um, you know, last week he was going to talk about how the military is popular. He was going after the military, you know, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is a pig and an idiot and all these kinds of things. Um, that to me is more explained by my stuff about a business model than anything else. It's incentives. Um, it's right. It's yeah. incentives. Um, and then two, I, we do not have time because I know you got to go, but, um, I take your broader point about the cynicism of your students saying, what is that? What are the, what does he really mean? Blah, 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 blah. But you picked like perhaps the single best topic to troll me on this because I do not believe that Woodrow Wilson believed <laughs> to make the world safe for democracy or the 14 point stuff. Uh, I mean, maybe believing the 14 point stuff is a matter of, tr of a, a, a treaty position, but, uh, and I'm glad to have this argument with you. Self-determination was never an explicitly democratic concept for him. It was much more of a, a racial and ethnic concept about the Darwinian nature of, of nation states. Um, but we can have that debate another time if you like. Right. No, well, we, yeah, we can, we can talk about Woodrow Wilson another time. But I, I think the idea of making the world safe for democracy, that America had a kind of a missionary role in the world. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and that ties in with one of some of the things you're saying. Self-determination was the, one of the more problematic aspects of, of the 14 points, right? Um, yeah, I, I, you know, the, uh, we're in strange times. I don't know what, how else to say it. That's my historian's view. We're in very strange and odd times. There's a lot of incentives for people, you know, and we've talked about this, right? This is the word grift has become so popular these last few days, be, partly because people can have careers and make money peddling this stuff. That's why you have it. If, if people weren't successful, I'm not talking about anyone in particular, but if people weren't successful doing this, they wouldn't do it. You wouldn't have as many people. So I think that's, but it is tapping in. Like, go back to Hofstetter and, and think about the populists, right? He went after the populists as an example of the paranoid style. And, you know, I, I'm, not a, I'm not sympathetic to the populists' you know, viewpoint on banks and so forth. But, you know, it's important to understand where these ideas came from and why some of these people would have felt uh, so disenfranchised and so beaten down that they would believe in these kinds of international conspiracies. Uh, and that's one thing that I think Hofstetter never did. And that's one of Hofstetter's, the weaknesses is he lacked empathy as a historian. Um, he, you know, he, he, that's why his stuff on populism isn't very good, I think. Uh, some of the other stuff is better. I mean, he, he couldn't understand these people. And that's why, you know, future other historians, Michael Kazin and others have kind of went back to the populist and looked at it. You know, Kazin's not a populist. But he's, he's at least saying, why do these people believe what they did? And I think good historians do that. They go back and they take people who they don't agree with and sometimes even dislike and figure out why did they think the way they, th they thought um, and give them the benefit of the doubt, even if they are incredibly irrational, that perhaps deep down there might be some, some form of rationality to the way they're thinking. Right, and not to write large numbers of people off. You know, why? What was the anti-Masonic movement in the 19th century in America? I mean, to us, it looks crazy, right? But understand why? You know, why did these people buy into these conspiracies? So, you know, I, I think that's that's important as well. I, I'm more sympathetic to populism, broadly speaking, and I think I don't think populism is a new phenomenon. Uh, I actually wrote my thesis in. As an undergrad, I won't give the year, but many decades ago on populism and conservatism, you know, it's, it's, it's been there for a while. And it's been an issue. So, yeah, I, 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 
I'm troubled by your 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 historicism. It's really remarkable. You start talking about empathy, a word that enters the English language from Einfühlung, from the German historicists like Herder and whatnot. We're we're historians. We we historicize by definition, right? This is what we do. We 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 try to figure out why people thought the way they did. Why and and this is something that political scientists just don't understand. And this is my main beef with kind of conservative political scientists. Um, and they think we're all history. His, they think we're all just mindless nihilists, right? And that's just simply not true. Um, no, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, you know, but you, you, I mean, you do seem to be uh, crossing back and forth between one of my favorite distinctions, which is the difference between an explanation and an excuse. And uh, you know, the historian is perfectly in his rights to offer an explanation about why people were susceptible to believing that a cabal of English and Jews were ruining America in the 19th century. It's not as a matter of factual argumentation, an excuse for believing it. It's just an explanation. The, the historians aren't in, shouldn't be in the business of making excuses for people. That's not, that's not what this, that's a different kind of history, right? That's a, um, but it should be in the business of explanation. Um, uh, you know, if you look at the rise of Nazi Germany, right, you, to, to explain why people bought into these theories and ideas is not to excuse uh, Nazism or Hitler. It's just to explain. And, and some of the, the least satisfactory histories, I think, are those that, um, of, let's say, you know, I'm thinking of Goldhagen, for instance, you know, which, you know, can't, because they are so for obvious reasons, understandable reasons, uh, they can't get their mind into what these people would have been thinking in the 1930s. Um, but I think the better history say, okay, this is what, what they believe, why they believed it. It doesn't excuse them. It doesn't mean I, I support them or think they're right, but it helps us to understand, in fact, why horrible evil happens. You know, communism, people didn't become, you know, communism didn't come about uh, because just a few bad ideas. There, there was, there's beliefs there. There are people, in the, and you can understand why certain people in certain time periods in certain places might have bought into these ideas, which I think are terrible. I think they're wrong, but it doesn't I mean, excuse them to say that. As, I, mean, I, I appreciate this as a matter of historical explanation. I think you're, you're, you're largely, if not entirely right, but you're using that analogy to analogize explaining what's going on right now among people we know. <laughs> well, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to put you on the hook. I'm just trying but, to explain. But that's I think why that's why we're talking past each other a little right. bit. And that's why historians don't, shouldn't, you know, some people ask me, when can you start writing history? I usually do the 25-year rule, that you really need 25 years out before you can start thinking historically about a topic. Uh, it's hard, as, and I'm talking as a historian professionally. Yeah, I, I can't talk historically about what's, I can talk as an American citizen, as someone interested in politics, I can talk to you about it. Um, but I can't, you know, as a historian, no, I, you're just, this is the classic case of you're just too invested, too personally invested in what's going on to be able to have at least a little bit of distance from those people in the past. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I've written about, I don't know, I mean, I've written things about immigration restrictionists. I'm not an immigration restrictionist, but yeah, I'm trying to figure out what, what did they think? Why, why, how did they come to these ideas? Uh, they weren't all eugenicists, but even eugenics, you know, how, where did these ideas come from? Why do people think this? Uh, you know, you, if you think about eugenics, a lot of the eugenicists came out of a certain cultural milieu up in New England here, Harvard University, you know, the Immigration Restriction League. You have to sort of understand the culture of Boston Brahmins, Boston Protestants to understand where these ideas come from and how eugenics develops and how anti-immigration sentiment develops. Uh, that doesn't mean I think that they are. So that's you know, if I were living in 19... 
10, would I feel the same way? No, I don't think I would feel the same way. I would, you know, I wouldn't feel, um, I wouldn't feel kindly towards people, you know, denigrating my family or my relatives because of their, you know, their ethnicities. But, uh, but I, you know, in, in 2021, I, I can do that. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, the nice thing about being in 1910 is you had no white privilege because you weren't considered white back then. That, well, do we, so, <laughs> Jonah, you pull, do we have to go through whiteness and why this is a, in fact, in, in 10 minutes, I'm going to go and explain to people why, what this is a bogus concept here and why this was not, that, that immigrants were not, European immigrants were always considered white legally. Uh, this is not a, um, what you had were historians who picked, you know, picked things, you know, some, one of one historian picked out a court case in Alabama, a lower, you know, like a district court case where an Italian was called not white. And therefore, you know, all Italians were deemed not white because of this one court case in, you know, a lower court case in Alabama. Uh, no, if you look through immigration records, they, when they, when they, they put down color, it's always, it's white. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I was just making yeah. fun of like, cause the problem with whiteness was not the concept it is today. Back then it was like the, the trick was to be a wasp, not white. Right. I mean, and that's a cultural thing as much as it is about in right. the race you know. when they talked about race and there was something called a dictionary of races. Uh, and this was used in, in immigration, started off in the immigration service and it goes in. It's a list with at the top are, the, are wasps, right, or, or, or English. And then the categories go down in ascending order. Uh, you know, the Czechs and the Hungarians and then the Italians and the Greeks. Uh, and then you get, you know, people of color further down. So yeah, it's it's a different terminology. Where were the Jews? Where are the Hebrews on this? Hebrews, list? Hebrews. Remember, they were um, you know whether they were a little higher or a little below the Italians, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but it's an interest, you know, that this is the only category that's based on religion at this time was was Hebrew, uh, and that's you know we were, we're not going to get into this conversation too no, much. No, but, um, but, <laughs> but yeah, anyway. no, I, I'm, I'm glad I, I at least I, I can make a, a, a small brief for what historians do. Uh, it's, it's a pet peeve of mine that I think too many, too many conservatives, too many intellectual conservatives come from the political science world. And there's too much, um, uh, not enough understanding of what historians actually do. So you can have, you can have a Straussian on next time. who will he'll bash me as a horrible historicist nihilist. And yeah, I, I got, I got much bigger beefs with people who call themselves Straussians these days than I do with people who call themselves you know, I'm assuming you mean the the West Coast Straussians. Uh, much more than uh than I mean, how many East Coast Straussians are left? But yeah, I mean, like to 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 spend decades talking about how much you care about the two things: constant the Constitution and statesmanship, and then go the way you've gone. And we we know exactly how who and I'm dog whistling here and or, or subtweeting or whatever. All right, Vin Canato, got to have you back on more often. You're a fan favorite. I, as people can probably tell. We like talking to each other. Um, thank you for coming on The Remnant. All right. Thank you, Jonah. Okay. So uh, Vin Canato um, had to go uh, do his history professor thing. Um, uh, I feel guilty that, you know, sometimes the only times I catch up with Vin, who was one of my closest friends in Washington back when he lived here for a very long time. Um, but I, the way I catch up with him is by having him on the podcast, but it's better than nothing. I got to make my way to Boston to say hi see his kids um anyway uh i hope listeners found it interesting i did i i basically just enjoy talking to vin about things and um 
Uh, we will have an interesting guest on Thursday once we identify who that guest is. And um, thanks, everybody, for listening. I got to go to a big office lunch thing with the entire staff, which should be fun. And um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.